command with growing hearts we see thee rise the true and strong and free from far and wide O Canada we stand on guard for thee from far and wide, O Canada, we stand on guard for Thee. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for Thee. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this, everybody. How are you? My name's Tim Hanlon, as announced. Uh, I appreciate that uh, from our uh, dulcet-toned announcer, Mr. Corey Coates. Thank you, sir. Always, as always. Uh, And uh, this is uh, the podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports, our curious little journey each week into that genre. We call it Good seats still available. I appreciate tremendously you finding us uh, on whatever device that uh, you have downloaded and or streamed us. Uh, and uh, if it's a return visit, we welcome you back. And if it's your first time here, we uh, can't uh, be more thankful for uh, giving us a try in the vast array of podcast choices that are out there for you. And uh, we're, we're humbled. Uh, we're grateful for your uh, giving us a few minutes of your time and hopefully we'll uh, entertain and maybe even educate you a little bit. Uh, I do want to say at this very moment, however, I do want to apologize to all of our Canadian listeners uh, who uh, probably endured uh, that clip at the top of the show and uh, maybe even are scratching their heads as to like, what the hell was that? Well, uh, what that was, of course, was an attempt uh, at the uh, Canadian national anthem. And um, if you're a Canadian football fan, Canadian football league in particular, Uh, You may remember an interesting period of time uh, in the early to mid-1990s, in particular 1993 to 1995, when the Canadian Football League, the CFL, uh, got stars in their eyes, shall we say, and uh, and eyed this sort of wacky thing called expansion. And not only was it just expansion generally, and and maybe even considered in in uh, in the country of Canada, but south of the border actually the united states let's put teams in the canadian football league expand them into the united states what a great idea and uh for a while it actually was and and there's some interesting pockets of uh of history and some anecdotes here that you'll see that uh, the canadian football league uh was not completely in left field by uh trying to uh consider uh some still relatively fertile 
uh, professional environments in the United States as uh, as expansion franchises. But as we'll hear in our conversation with uh, journalist and longtime sports writer Ed Willis, uh, he, the author of uh, a fascinating book about that three-year period of time with the CFL called End Zones and Border Wars, The Era of American Expansion in the CFL, um, you're going to hear a whole bunch of crazy, unbelievable, and uh, just downright wacky uh, stories and anecdotes and uh, mishaps and malapropisms and and you name it uh, about this, uh, this 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 insane little adventure uh, of the CFL as it uh, decided and pursued uh, expansion uh, in the United States. That clip that you heard was from a 1994 uh, game between the Las Vegas Posse. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember what team they were playing, but it, it kind of doesn't really matter because the team didn't last. It barely lasted a year. Uh, but the, uh, the singer, uh, and this is, this is a good example, a good, uh, uh, microcosm of the league itself. His name was Dennis Casey Parks. I believe it was, uh, he has, uh, under the pseudonym of, uh, of Greg Bartholomew, um, sang or attempted to sing the national anthem of Canada, called, of course, O Canada, referred to as O Canada. But uh, after a couple of bars, kind of got lost with the tune and kind of defaulted. I uh, got the lyrics right. Good for him. Uh, but the tune unmistakably uh, sounded a lot more like O Christmas Tree. And uh, and that's what you heard and got. And it became a very famous clip. I think most, most Canadian sports fans know that clip very well. But um, it's indicative of just a crazy series of stories and uh, and uh, history and anecdotes around this this silly, unbelievable, uh, hard to believe three year adventure uh, in the 1990s of the CFL and its American expansion, uh, and that is the conversation today this week uh, with Ed Willis coming up in a couple of seconds. I, I uh, encourage you to to listen early, listen often. Maybe you want to repeat a few things because there are some things that you're just not going to believe, frankly. Uh, in this chat with uh, with Ed coming up. Uh, so promotionally, let's uh, talk about a few things, shall we? Uh, Audible uh, books uh, or Audible audiobooks, of course, uh, one of our longtime sponsors. We appreciate them uh, tremendously. And uh, if you want a free audiobook download to give a uh, uh, a trial, shall we say, of, uh, of what an audiobook is all about, uh, you couldn't do any worse than by going to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and getting yourself a free one-month uh, subscription to the Audible service, and of course, getting a free audiobook download from the uh, gigantic uh, trove of over 180,000 titles uh, to choose from. And uh, there are all kinds of genres uh, out there for you to enjoy. Uh, just pick one. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the process. You'll enjoy uh, listening, and I think you'll enjoy the whole uh, concept of listening to a book versus having to strain your eyes and read it as such. You can cancel at any time. And uh, you'll be giving a little bit of love to us financially. We always appreciate that because uh, Lord knows we're not a charity. We, uh, we you know, need a little scratch to kind of keep us going here uh, to get these great stories like the CFL uh, conversation we're going to have in a second uh, to you. And uh, by going to audibletrial.com slash good seats and giving the uh, service a try uh, and getting a free audiobook download, you're going to be uh, helping us along the way. So we appreciate Audible for their sponsorship and we appreciate you for giving them a uh Give them a shot as well. We uh, we uh, tremendously appreciate it. Uh, also, our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com are as well worth your time. Uh, they are uh, there for you 
to explore all kinds of interesting memorabilia and stuff from teams and leagues, uh, either in different incarnations or frankly, just no longer with us. Uh, you name the sport, there's probably a chance that sportshistorycollectibles.com, if not now, very soon, will have all kinds of interesting inventory for you to consider, to choose, to see lushly uh, photographed and, and presented on the website. And of course, if you find something that uh, just uh, immediately tickles your fancy, uh, either for you or a friend, a loved one, and you want to make that purchase, you want to make a couple of purchases, well, <laughs> we've got you covered, friend. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Yep, that's good seats. That's the promo code. Because when you decide to buy something, you just enter that little promo code there at checkout. And what are you going to do? You're going to get 15% off your purchases. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use the promo code good seats and get 15% off all of your purchases. So that's awesome. We thank them as well, of course. Um, all right. So let's get to our uh, uh, fun uh, chat with uh, an amazing, interesting uh, curiosity, an asterisk, if you will, of, of uh, pro football history, the Canadian version of such, uh, the CFL and its various exploits in the early to mid-1990s as they expanded to the United States. Uh, a fun chat, and here it is with Ed Willis. The CFL, right, a very fascinating league uh, on a whole bunch of uh, different levels, but perhaps no more fascinating than this uh, period during the early to mid-1990s where uh, the the siren song, I guess, of the United States uh, came uh, came knocking on the door, I guess. And um, it, you have, I, I think, frankly, have written the definitive uh, book about that period of time, which, you know, as you know, in this, this, uh, this show, uh, we are, uh, for whatever reasons, we are fascinated and or obsessed with... Uh, teams and leagues and, and situations that uh, are no longer with us. And um, we, uh, we appreciate your taking time and stuff. So do you um, maybe want to give our audience a little bit of background about who you are uh, and your career path and all of that? And then maybe if you can uh, figure out a way to smoothly segue into why you felt a book about this particular period of time in the CFL's history. Well, I, I kind of share your obsession uh, with, past leagues and and uh, stories from those leagues, which quite frankly scares me a bit. Um, I am uh, currently, I am 62. I've been a sports writer for 35 years. I started in a small town in Alberta and I kind of worked my way up. Uh, I worked in Regina. I worked in Winnipeg for eight years. I had a freelance gig in Montreal where I did a lot of work for the New York Times for a year, and that led to my current position as a columnist with the uh, Vancouver Province, now the Vancouver Province and the uh, Vancouver Sun. Uh, mostly writing hockey, hard to do, uh, hard to get around that in, in Canada. But uh, you know, I had a wide variety of things. I've covered nine uh, Olympics, uh, five Super Bowls, probably half a dozen majors. Uh, I was in a time when newspapers still had money and still had a bit of a travel budget. But uh, I, I would see a fairly well-rounded career. That's, uh, I, ticked, I think I've checked a lot of boxes in my time as a sports writer. So you're a quintessential classic newspaper sports reporter guy, right? Well, last of a dying breed, unfortunately. There are a few of us still left uh, hanging on trying to fight the good fight. I, 
sometimes it feels like a losing battle, but there's still something about the experience of sitting behind a computer and crafting a story, trying to bring something to life that uh, is uh, uh, endlessly rewarding and entertaining. So uh, I've got no complaints. I've had I've had a great run. Well, so uh, give us a sense then of your um, your experiences with. I'm assuming that that uh, covering. Uh, the, uh, the the teams of the and the league itself of the Canadian Football League over the years uh, was part of your assignments uh, 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 for you know your job and for personal passion I guess too no yeah well it, it, it's kind of funny because during the area of era of American American expansion I was in Winnipeg but I was I was the hockey columnist there. As such, I was kind of like dimly aware of all this craziness that was going on, but I wasn't there covering it on a day-to-day basis like so many of my colleagues were. So um, the genesis of the book actually starts, the BC Lions are hosting the uh, Grey Cup in 2005, and we're doing a, a, a special um, a, a special edition, uh, 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 a standalone. Uh, kind of to you know to to to, to sell as as part of the Grey Cup package, and I had always been fascinated by that 1994 Grey Cup game between the Baltimore then CFLers and the BC Lions, and that was uh, it was the second year of expansion, but it was really the first year that there was like I believe there were three American teams in the league that year. Baltimore was a success story. It turned into this huge Canadian nationalism story because it was the first time an American team was competing for the Grey Cup and that Baltimore team was loaded and and the BC Lions team, I knew a lot of the people around. They were still around Vancouver and I knew there was an endless supply of characters there and I had heard some of the stories so I did a little deeper dive into it and I was just just amazed by the richness uh, of the characters and the stories connected with that game. And uh, there was just a little light that said, you know, I think there's a book here. I think if I start getting a little deeper into the uh, whole era of American expansion, I think it's going to be a lot of these kind of stories. And, uh, and that's what I did. So, you know, spent uh, the better part of, uh, of a year poking away at it. Some people were hard to find, and I didn't cover all the bases. But I, I think I succeeded in, 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 in painting a picture of what the league was like, the dire straits the CFL were in, how desperate they were, you know, the people they turned to in the States, the follies that uh, incurred thereafter, and then the uh, – uh, sort of from a CFLer's point of view, the the happy ending at the at the end of all this, when it looked like the the league was about to uh, crater because it's out of the ashes of this failed experiment that the CFL uh, actually saves and resurrects itself. So you weren't a beat reporter during this period of time uh, at all, but no, you were no. really part of the sports landscape, obviously in your uh, in your day job, albeit with other sports, et cetera. Yeah, no, it was funny. I was, uh, so, I, you know, I, my time in Saskatchewan, I covered the Rough Riders. Uh, you know, when I started in Winnipeg, I was a general columnist, so I did a lot of football. And then I was just happened to be concentrating on hockey. You know, in my current gig in Vancouver, I've covered the CFL for the last 20 years, so I've always been around it. And I was raised on on CFL legends. My my mother's from Regina, and my dad's a farm boy from uh, from Alberta. From Alberta and, 
you know, they love the CFL. So it's always been a part of my life. So I, I never strayed that far from it. Uh, I, I just didn't have that kind of firsthand knowledge. Like I said, a lot of my colleagues did, but they were very helpful and very generous uh, when I went to research it. Well, so uh, to give our audience, obviously, a lot of uh, our audience uh, lives in the United States, but I, but you will be surprised and shocked, perhaps, at uh, some of the various nooks and crannies around the globe. I mean, we're talking places like Bahrain and uh, Djibouti, believe it or not, and uh, New Zealand and all that stuff. But maybe you can give our audience, both uh, American football snobs and otherwise, uh, a bit of a, a little bit of a, a quick primer on uh, the Canadian Football League, which has been around for, uh, I think, for for many sort of naive Americans, a whole long time, and uh, has been uh, probably as as old in an establishment, maybe even preceding that of say the the mighty NFL. Um, can you give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of the uniqueness and or the uh, commonality, I guess, around the CFL before we kind of delve into how we got to the 90s? Sure. sure. And I'm going to paint in broad strokes here, but football has been played in Canada in one form or another since the 1880s. And, and the Great Cup has been competed for. Uh, it was originally presented as a Challenge Cup, but it's been over 100 years. I believe the first one is not, don't don't hold me to this, but it, it's sometimes around World War One because uh, the 2012 game in Toronto was the hundredth anniversary, and I, I know there was you know years they missed in there. So I mean, it has got this long, rich history. Now, as a league, as a, as a, as a standalone entity, the CFL has really only existed since the, I'm, I'm going to say the early 50s, early to mid 50s. But there were all kinds of Western interprovincial leagues and Ontario Quebec leagues and things like that. And each of these leagues would produce their cha- their own champion, and then they would they would face off at the Great Cup. Uh, it becomes unified at some point in the in the fifties as a a nine team entity. Teams uh, w- when they expand to uh, Vancouver in uh, nineteen fifty four, I believe it was. It, they become the nine teams. So now you've got teams in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Hamilton, Winnipeg, Regina, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. And that's kind of the CFL everybody grew up with. Now, the league has kind of had a boom and bust mentality throughout its history. There have been times when they've been able to compete for the very best players coming out of the States. Uh, in, in the 1950s, uh, Sam Echeverry was... I believe an all-American quarterback, star in the CFL for many years with the Montreal Alouettes and then goes and finishes his career with the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, Cookie Gilchrist got his start in the Canadian game in the 50s. Uh, in the 60s, players like Vic Washington, Bo Scott, uh, a little later Mac Heron, all, all started in Canada. Uh, the Montreal Alouettes, long before they their ill-fated um, uh, chasing of American football stars, they brought Tom Kuzno to the CFL when he was the, you know, was slated to be the first overall draft pick in the NFL draft. So there have been times when the CFL has challenged, I shouldn't say challenged, but they've been competitive with the very best players. And then there are times when they've kind of teetered on the brink of disaster. And the period we're going to talk about was probably the most glaring example of that because uh, it was for a whole host of factors. The league was just hanging on by its fingernails, which is why they basically turned to this idea of American expansion as seed money to keep the, to keep the operation going. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute, but perhaps as a more of a bit of a prelude, um, 
there's always been sort of this um, interesting, I guess, fascination by football fans in the United States, uh, maybe more as a curiosity than a than an out and out um, obsession or fascination, right? With the version of football, American football, quote unquote, played above uh, uh, the border, um, both in terms of say the size of the field and the number of the downs and uh, the approach to scoring and all that kind of stuff, but it it even uh, it, there are there are some dalliances over the years, right? With some uh, some U.S. neutral site games and even some uh, some bits and pieces of television coverage, even before we get to say uh, you know the '80s and '90s when you know television was exploding and there were you know people seeking sports programming in, in from all corners of the of the globe. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent, and and by far the most fascinating game. And would that they were filming this one, but I believe it was played in Ottawa, and it was against the New York Giants and the Ottawa Rough Riders. And I duck and duck, and I finally found game reports of it. So if I remember right, they, they, they played two halves, and they played the first half with American rules and the second half uh, with Canadian rules. And that New York, it was coached, I'm pretty sure Ali Sherman was the coach. I'm pretty sure why Diddle played in that game. Uh, for the Giants, and I, I don't know who else would have been, but it would have been very close to the team that you know played the Baltimore Colts in the famous uh, uh, 57 NFL championship game. So, so there is that one. I, I, I believe the longest sort of uh, sustained uh, uh, series was against the uh, early AFL teams, and I know that like the Buffalo Bills played the Hamilton Tiger Cats. I think there were three or four of those games in the early 60s. So they have gone, there, there, there is a bit of a history there, uh, for sure, which predated, um, you know, th- that, that area you're talking about, when, uh, you know, the CFL kind of, you know, becomes a bit of a curiosity piece for ESPN when they're starting off and some of the other cable networks. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was a, a, a naive or unaware of that, the NFL exhibition, and even the AFL exhibition, and uh, games against the CFL. I, I was just even thinking about just some simple neutral site games, especially in the 50s and 60s, where two teams from the CFL came to places like, what, Portland, Oregon, and uh, a few other places to kind of, I guess, demonstrate the sport. Um, but it's also very interesting, too, that uh, uh, from my uh, crack research here, I, my understanding is that the 1954 uh, NBC uh, sports uh, uh, unit uh, covered uh, 13 games of the, I guess it wasn't officially known as the CFL at that point, but just before it. Um, I think ABC in 1962 even had uh, uh, the Grey Cup final, which was uh, 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 you know famously known as the Fog Bowl. I don't think even the game finished. Uh, you mentioned ESPN in 1981, which was obviously a fledgling uh, and, you know, uh, sports, all sports network looking for as much programming. But I think very most interestingly, and I saw a bunch of these things in U- on YouTube a couple of days ago when searching this up, you know, when the NFL struck, you know, the players strike uh, strike occurred in 1982. Um, talk about a scramble for NBC and CBS in the States to fill the time uh, for at least those weeks with uh, football related programming. CBS went sort of the small division college route in the United States. But who came a calling in 1982? NBC up north. And instead of being in San Diego uh, for a a big AFC battle between the Chargers and somebody, maybe the Raiders, uh, you saw Dick Enberg and a a, uh, a, a heavily bearded Merlin Olsen in in Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton and uh, looking no worse for the wear. 
I was unaware of that. It, it, it doesn't surprise me a, a bit. I'm, you know, sort of, a, a, again, you know, like aware of those one-offs. I, I, why do I want to say that broadcast of the Fog Bowl was part of wide, wide, wide world of sports? It was ABC, was it not? I, I, that's my recollection, at least. So, yeah, there, there is, so, yeah, yeah. So, but, but, you know, and again, I think the larger point here is, is there's kind of always been this sort of, um, not a deep connection, but there's always been a curiosity, um, maybe even a you know an interest in, in in the games going across the borders, um, and you know you know I think from you know an American's point of view, and going back to this history, Canada's had of attracting you know top uh, uh, U.S. college players uh, to Canada. That's always been like a you know a significant part. Uh, of the of the CFL story again, whether it's Sam Edgeford or whether it's Johnny Manziel today. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I think that probably helps explain at least part uh, of the interest in it. Well, so let's get into obviously let's start skating into uh, the CFL circa early 1990s, uh, and and perhaps an interesting little uh, inflection point that could be helpful to our audience is. Uh, we we obviously know that the USFL had been uh, going on during the uh, during the uh, early part of the mid part of the 1980s, but uh, the NFL was also uh, rumbling around with this thing called the World League of American Football, which was sort of an attempt to kind of Europeanize the game and get some uh, some teams uh, interested and in, and sort of internationally spread out the sport. Um, but it's inter- it's important to know that the uh, WLIF story a bit because. It was also part of the germination, I guess, of what uh, the American expansion wound up becoming in the CFL. But maybe before we get there, what was the CFL like in the early 90s? Because it does sound like, especially the way you've written it, uh, you said hanging by its fingernails, but some really trying times for this league that arguably was, uh, you know, uh, well-historied and um, uh, and ingrained in Canadian uh, sports, uh, the, the Canadian sports landscape. Yeah, well, you know, again, and in, in, you know, keeping with this theme of the boom and bust mentality, they had a rich television contract with Carling O'Keefe uh, that really paid the bills and the, you know ensured viability for all nine of the teams. And and I, I'm going to say it ran out in 1986, and there was nothing to replace it. There was a very world war going on in Canada, and the CFL was seen as this property. They had to line up with, and then it just kind of disappeared, and teams were left scrambling. So, this period of crises really started. It's really run running for about three, four years, and they kind of, you know, there's, there's a kind of some successes and there's trouble franchises, but as the CFL always does, you know, they struggle on, and they, you know, they find a way to make it to the next payday. Um, early '90s. A couple of things happen, not the least of which is Bruce McNall shows up as the uh, owner of the uh, Toronto Argos. And, you know, in so many ways, he epitomizes this era because, like, he promises Flash, he promises, uh, he, he promises uh, the stars and, 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 and to bankroll this operation, which is almost like a borderline NFL team. They go out and they sign Rocket Ishmael. Um, you know, the, the the most famous, I don't know where, I, I, I can't remember if he was going to be the first overall pick that year. I believe he was to Oakland. 
but they they swoop in and sign him up. Um, they've got John Candy is one of the owners of the team with Wayne Gretzky, so they've got this Hollywood connection. So they're selling this, you know, glitz and glamour, and of course Bruce McDonald didn't have two nickels to rub together, so he soon be painfully obvious to, to everybody. So th- th- that kind of is going on in BC. There's another fly by, native, by the name of Marie Pesham, who's a stock promoter, who is would easily win, uh, gain and lose millions of dollars in any week. And when he was flush, he was fine. But uh, as often as not, he would lose whatever he made. But he brings Doug Flutie to the CFL too. So there's the kind of this promise that the league is entering this exciting new era with great stars and 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 all the rest of it. But underneath of it, underneath it, there's like these people just didn't have the money, just didn't have you know like the wherewithal to sustain anything over the long term. This also comes on the heels of uh, in the '80s, uh, the late '80s in particular. Well, a couple of times in the '80s, uh, perhaps maybe a symbolic. Uh, perhaps precursor of some of the troubles uh, in the story of the once again, then not, and then again, yet again, Montreal Alouettes. Maybe, maybe a little bit of background on that because that, that, I think it's a good scene setter for perhaps. I, I'm sorry, you're you're right. You're <laughs> the poster boy for the fly by night owners in in the CFL is a dude named Nelson Scalvania, who's from my hometown, who made a, a lot of money in real estate. And, and he was, uh, he was actually the guy who signed Wayne Gretzky in the, in the WHA, but he goes into Montreal and uh, the Alouettes had been a wildly su- successful franchise through the seventies coached by Marv Levy with the, you know, a number of players who went on to the NFL and some great CFL players, Hall of Famer routinely put 50, 60,000 in the big O. So Nelson Scalvania looks in that and goes, geez, if we bring some NFL stars into this, I, I can only imagine what we're going to do. So he goes out, he signs Vince Ferragamo, he signs White Shoes Johnson, James Scott from the Chicago uh, Bears, Keith Gary from the Pittsburgh Steelers, a first rounder, David Overstreet, and they go out and they couldn't beat an egg. Uh, and so he's sitting there, and of course, this lasts for two years. I believe the year is, it's in the early 80s. It's 81 or 82 that all this happens. And of course, Calvany runs out of money and he's nowhere to be seen. So now the Alouettes are left to scramble. Um, then they come, then they go through all these incarnations. They become the Concords for a while. They fold, they come back as the Alouettes. And then, as we'll get to it in the, in our discussion of the of the uh, of the expansion into the states, uh, they finally come back as the Alouettes. They're actually the Baltimore franchise that ends up in Montreal, and that's when they're saved. But this is this, that was like 1997, 1998 before that that happened. So this incredibly rich storied CFL franchise goes through 16 years where it's wandering around in the desert just trying to survive and sometimes not surviving well okay here comes so here comes uh, the first of perhaps many uh, naive american questions um the uh it seems to me that the uh the nature of the sort of traditional or maybe not traditional owner uh or the approach to what what the league and how it's sold and marketed and all that kind of stuff was in the midst of a, an evolution i guess in the 80s and certainly in the early 90s, right? Um, my understanding, right, is that a lot of uh, the teams up until about that point were, I don't know, more locally owned or consortium-based or community-rooted 
uh, or perhaps even, you know, uh, community minded, civic minded philanthropist types who, you know, saw it as almost a uh, a greater good for the for the for the town or the city uh, and or the, the Canadian sort of uh, league. Uh, now meeting perhaps some of the uh, brash, younger, maybe more moneyed and or uh, money chasing uh, new blood ownership. Is that, is that a fair assessment? No, no, hundred percent it is, and it's and 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 yeah, there there is the business of the game changes dr- dramatically, and you know the CFL uh, ha- had always you know operated quite well. Uh, all the Western teams, I believe, in that era were community owned. The, the one privately owned team was, was the Alouettes, and their owner was a gentleman named Sam Berger, who you know wasn't you know, I mean, he was rich probably compared to you and me, but he wasn't a bad, you know, he wasn't like a multi-billionaire by any stretch of the imagination, but he, you know, ran this operation and uh, did, did very well by it. But, you know, like, like the, the CFL was at its best when it was just like plodding along, drawing its 25 to 30,000 fans per game to whatever stadium they were, you know, maybe making a bit of playoff money and then having a raging success in the CFL. And they totally start getting away with that with the emergence of guys like Scalbania, who doesn't have any staying power, but, you know, you can draw a straight line from him uh, to Bruce McNall, to Larry Rickman, who we'll talk about, I, I gather, in, 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 a, in a little bit, and other others of, of that help. They're, again, you know, venture capitalists is a really polite term for it because not 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 any of them have, have, have the wherewithal uh to sustain anything uh and that really becomes the you know the downfall of the american expansion agreement and the funny thing is the guys with real money who bought american franchises were only around for a little while and they took one look at it and looked at the losses and walked away they just said sayonara and that was it for them well it is also i guess you could sort of characterize these these guys as uh, certainly something quintessentially American, that sort of sports entrepreneur, right? And there's always been a long uh, strain of, uh, a, a, you know, we've, we've talked about this on many of our previous episodes, right? Sort of this, you know, we always come back to like, you know, why this league, why an expansion, why this team, why this, this sport? And a lot of it winds up, you know, it, it's sometimes in a torturous way, back to, Oh, so and so was a businessman, or he or she, you know, mostly he saw the opportunity to make a buck, right? Um, and we've seen it sort of over and over again. But it it almost seems like uh, that sort of um, I don't know that American uh, arrogance slash entrepreneurialism, uh, you know, uh, a capitalist kind of mindset almost uh, was a bit delayed, I guess, when it comes came to the the CFL until maybe the the modern day nineteen eighties nineteen nineties. Yeah, no, and I, and I get that, and you know, I think the, the the other part of the equation is simply it was so cheap to get a seat at the table, you know, compared to what NFL franchises were franchises were even then. I mean, you're talking about like a couple of million, and you know, and you can sit and you can now you can entertain, you know, the idea of building your own team and in a place like Toronto or in a place like Montreal, which are you know fairly big markets. So yeah, like I said, you know, like, like, I, I get that. I guess you know, my my point would be why anybody would look at the CFL and think this was the path to untold riches is beyond me. I mean, there was a 
very uh, well-established history, very well-established business practices, all those things that should have told them this isn't the kind of league where you go in and drop millions. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and that's really, you know, that, that, that leads to it uh, eventually. Now, there, obviously, there are other factors involved, which we're going to get to here. But uh, it, it was, I, 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 just, I guess I just wonder why they thought the CFL would have been, uh, would have been profitable to the extent they thought it was going to be profitable. Well, all right. Let's let's talk about sort of uh, the the early '90s in particular, um, 1992, right? Because there's a gentleman by the name of Larry Smith who becomes somewhat integral to this um, this big, rich, and uh, sometimes hard to believe chapter of the Canadian Football League's history. Um, who is Larry Smith, and how did he get to uh, to this position? And um, more interestingly, uh, who was doing the bidding for this idea of possible expansion in the in the U.S. was it him and and his thought process, or was he kind of just part of the owners or a group of owners uh, uh, changing desires? I guess for what the CFL might want to become. Sure. Well, let's start with Larry Smith. Now, if you're going to do a composite of the perfect commissioner for the CFL, this is the guy you would have come up with. Former player with the Montreal Alouettes. Uh, Bilingual, fluent in French and English. Uh, MBA, I want to say, from McGill. From McGill. Uh, very accomplished uh, with, with Ogilvy Foods. He'd been like a, one of the rising young executives and, you know, a huge uh, a food company. And he's still, I, I believe when he takes, he, he's in his early 40s when he takes over the mantle. So, like I said, if you were going to draw a picture of what you'd want the CFL commissioner to look like, this is who you get. So I'm sorry, I'm just drawing a blank on who he succeeded now, but, but, you know, there, there were overtures made and they looked at a couple of other guys before they said him, but, you know, in, in talking to Larry for the book, the very first meeting he has, and I want to say, it's, I know Rickman is one of them, because, but, but he has said, look, we are going to go ahead with this plan for American expansion, whether you're, whether you're on board or not. That this is already happening. So the wheels had been turning before Smith was hired. They just appointed Smith as the front man to sell uh, the uh, the idea, and uh, you know that that became his job. But but the direction, you know, the the the, the map was all already set out, and then they were headed down that road, and nobody was going to dissuade them from it. Yeah, and the guys the guys who were kind of uh, either behind Smith's hiring and or. Uh, coming up with sort of the agenda, I guess, that Smith was uh, hired gun to become or to, to uh, sort of make happen. Uh, you're mentioning a few of them, right? So one's what, Larry Rickman out of out of Calgary. I guess guess McNall, Bruce McNall out of, out of Toronto was sort of part of that mix. Are there any others? And or was it a minority sort of uh, overrun of the of the of the of the owners? Or was this sort of a, a, a drumbeat with with more actors? Yeah, I, I, you know, in going back, I couldn't find anybody who was standing up saying, no, this is a terrible idea. This is going to ruin us. We're going too fast. Look at who we're inviting into our league. Don't let this happen. And if they did, they kept it to themselves. Uh, there, there may have been dissenting voices on the board of governors, but they weren't loud and they certainly weren't public. And, and by far, and, and, and guys like Rickman, who is very much part of this um, 
you know, venture capitalist group who saw great things for the CFL and really didn't have a whole lot of money of his own. Fits, fits again into that, this McNall, Murray Pezum, uh, Nelson Scalvania kind of club, club of owners, and he's one of them. So I can just double back. It was, um, they had been talking about expansion of the CFL as an ongoing thing way, right, right back into the late, the late 80s. Uh, Bill Baker was the commissioner of the CFL for, for a very short time, but I did talk to him. And he said, yeah, it came up at the board. But they were taught, it was a completely different idea, this first incarnation of it. It was smaller border towns uh, they were looking at going into, um, and nothing like, like what it became. So the idea was there. The seed had been planted. And, and again, when you look at Rickman, when you look at McDonald, when you look at all these guys, you can understand why they thought this was a keen idea because they're just looking for the seed money from the franchises that they're going they're going to get, and uh, and the first guy to step up is Fred Anderson. So when you when you say border towns, you're, are you saying uh, American border towns or Canadian? Uh... Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, this was going to be the first, and I'm sorry, just I don't have the names. They are in the book. Because I remember, you know, Bill rattling them off. And, you know, for, for the sake of argument, it would have been like Toledo, Ohio, or Bo- Boise, Idaho. Got it. You know, kind of small, smaller American cities that they thought would welcome, see a, you know, would be an easy sell for, 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 for the CFL. Interesting. And, uh, and, and nothing became of that, of course. But, you know, I t- again, I think the larger point is, you know, the seed had been planted. That idea was in the air. And then when, you know, when, when McDowell and Rickman and these other characters come along, you can say, well, why would we go there when we can go to Baltimore and we can go to all these other places who will, you know, spend millions for a CFL franchise? That's very interesting. Well, it seems that uh, uh, Smith didn't waste uh, too much time because uh, by the summer of 92, uh, it was already architecting a uh, an exhibition game between uh, two teams of the league, the, uh, the Argonauts and the uh, Stampeders of Calgary. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, I think they got something on a little over 15,000 at uh, Civic Stadium there at the time. Um, and I guess uh, maybe you can you've got some color behind this. I guess this was, I don't know, something uh, approaching a, a showcase game or a test of the of the proposition that, you know, the the Canadian game could maybe make a go of it south of the border. It certainly turns out that way. Now, like I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on that game, game in the book because you know there are other things going on. But again, I think it sort of indicates what the mindset of the CFL Board of Governors was at that time, and they were definitely looking at the at, at the United States as an answer to a lot of their ills. Now, I think you know the larger development there is is the W laugh and. Why, if you're picking a league, are you going to pick that as the acronym for your league? But another story for another time. Yeah, it's actually important, though, right? Because uh, circa 1992, right, it was the second year of this uh, aforementioned World League of American Football, or LAF, as you like yeah. to say. I've never heard that acronym, but we might as well go with it. Um, and it's also very interesting, too, because right here you've got this exhibition game going on uh, in the summer, and you've got basically the second year of this NFL European slash semi-American uh, experiment that really was uh, kind of coming to an end after a two-year cycle, um, but it did show right that at least in a couple of markets, 
uh, in the United States that didn't already have an NFL franchise, that there were, uh, shall we say, hints of viability uh, to support yes, no, yeah. national football on some level, right? Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, there's actually, there's a, there's a WLAP team in Montreal, too, uh, that I think exists for a year, and I believe they made the championship uh, game in, the, in their one year of existence. Yes, the, the, other Mo- thing the is Montreal that, machine. It, it, the machine there in we Montreal. Go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but the other thing is, is, is and, and I think just as is important, it, it, it identifies parties interested in owning uh, a football team. And I know, like, and, you know, I, I did a book on the WHA, and, and you know, and I, I, that becomes really important, identifying potential owners, uh, you know, people who have a real deep-rooted interest in owning and operating a professional franchise. And uh, Fred Anderson ran the uh, – the, uh, it, was, it was in the WLAP, it was the team in Sacramento, was it not? That's correct. The Sacramento, and they eventually, the, yeah, Sacramento Surge. <laughs> Surge, yeah, who give birth to the uh, to, to the gold miners who you know become the the, the first team in, in expansion. But it's you know Anderson was like bound and determined to have a team in Sacramento, and he, he you know I guess he wasn't all that fussy about the league he was going to join because when the CFL approaches him, it's a pretty easy sell for them. Well, and uh, also joined by, although uh, more ill-fated, was uh, Larry Benson of the then San Antonio Riders of the WLAF. Uh, the, I guess the idea was to ha- have them, uh, as the newly rechristened San Antonio Texans, join as basically the first two of the franchises. And I guess it was, I don't know, it was not meant to be, but uh, by January of 93, the CFL, by a pretty large margin, I think Winnipeg was the only uh, dissenting franchise, voted to uh, expand to at least one, in this case, one team, the Sacramento Gold Miners in 1993, the first foray into the United States. I um, I just wonder, and and I don't know if you've got an answer to this or maybe some perspective, right? But uh, knowing that the WLAF, the World League of American Football, an NFL-owned venture, uh, was you know sort of nearing the end of its two-year experiment and then figuring out a way to retool it uh, sort of post-1992, uh, and the CFL with hints of wanting to expand. Um, I'm just wondering if there was any, it doesn't seem like there would be outwardly, but you have to think, you know, it's, is it a coincidence that a team that was in the two-year WLAF owned by the NFL, jumping, if you will, to the CFL, I, I wonder if there's some sort of coordination there, or at least some kind of understanding between the NFL and the CFL would on its face not seem to be the case, but I don't know. Maybe it seems like there was some kind of, you know, interesting uh, collaboration there that that makes Sacramento and then at, at least possibly a San Antonio franchise to come in to this new. Well, if, it were, if, it, if, if there was, it was well disguised by both parties, which is interesting because there is an agreement between the CFL and the NFL that comes up in 96 where the. Uh, uh, the, the NFL basically offers an interest-free loan to the CFL to the CFL to you know get get them through another one of their uh, troubled areas. But no, I I, I never came across that. Um, uh, the, the I mean, in fact, uh, the NFL's role in all this is, is is largely villainous from a CFLer's uh, point of view because because of the of the position they took with the Baltimore club. But no, I never got I never got the sense that they enlisted the aid or the NFL was interested in in, in any of this. 
So the gold miners, though, did did pretty well, though, right? I mean, I, I, I'm curious as to what sort of the the Canadian fans and the league itself sort of uh, saw in Sacramento being the one and only American team in 1993. Uh, was it was it viewed as a success or was it a curiosity or, or uncertain? I, I believe encouraging would probably be the best word. And, you know, you, know, you think of it like a first-year expansion team. Now they, you know, they rigged the rules. They allowed them to play with all Americans. I should, I should add in the CFL, there are, there are ratios. You have to employ so many Canadian players and so many American players. They threw it uh, wide open for, for the gold miners. I think they, do they go 6-12 and 12 in their first year? Whatever it is, but they're competitive. And they're also a reasonably entertaining team. The quarterback's a guy named David Archer, who I believe now does color for the Atlanta Falcons uh, 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 TV broadcast. He you know, played in the NFL. He was a very good CFL quarterback for a lot of years. I believe he'd been in the, in the WLAF uh, with, with, with the Sacramento team, and he was very tight with Fred Anderson. I think Fred Anderson regarded him almost like like a son. So, um, again, you know, encouraging, they, they, they don't draw great, but they draw, I think, in the neighborhood of 17 to 18,000 per game in, in, uh, in a substandard stadium, Hornet Stadium. I've only ever seen pictures of it. I've never been there myself. But it was, uh, yeah, it, it was like a rickety old, no amenities, no, you know, none of the fancy things you need for, to generate revenues in, in, uh, in professional sports. So that was it. That was the first time. And it was pretty well covered, like in going over the source material at that time. Like most of the big, uh, there was a game there, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, Calgary goes down there with Doug Flutie. And uh, it's a shootout. It's a great CFL game. It's one of these 42-38 games where the ball's going all over the field and there's a touchdown every three seconds. And I know, like, some of the big papers in Toronto sent their, you know, lead columnists out to cover it. And, and the response, like I said, was kind of this muted optimism, this sense that, you know, maybe we've got something here. We've got an owner. We've got a city that seems to, you know, embrace it. They've got a pretty good team. Maybe they're onto something. Yeah, that's um, and I think it's interesting too because the harbinger may perhaps of of what was to come uh, is actually interesting around the team that actually never did not make the nineteen ninety three season, the San Antonio, I guess Texans. Um, and if I read this correctly, I, it, it, tell me if I've got this right, they were set to announce uh, joining the league maybe at the same time as the gold miners, uh, but they pulled out. Literally the night that they were supposed to announce it in the press conference, is that right? So they, yeah, they have it all set up at the league meetings in Edmonton, and it, it's it's the dead of winter in Edmonton. I, I, I know, I'm going to say it's February or March, but they have it. And Fred Anderson is totally on board. He is committed to this to this vision, and they, and the league has been talking to to Denson about the other team, and and they're going to present them together. These two, these are the two new entries in the CFL: the team in San Antonio, the team in Sacramento. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get I'm going to get the names confused because the Benson who owns it is, is the brother of Tom Benson, who owns the New Orleans Saints, and he's the guy in the family with all the money. And the way, yeah, the way Smith explained it to me, it was like the family basically said to him, "Are you nuts? Do you think we are ponying up for a CFL team?" the night before and 
they were expecting him to show up. They're they're all at the hotel waiting for him, and they get a phone call from him that night going, uh, "Sorry, my family won't let me. I'm out." So they they go ahead. <laughs> this is so typical of that era. They go ahead with the press conference the next day, and they introduce Fred Anderson and the new team from Seattle or from Sacramento rather. And Fred's there, and he's answering all the questions. I I, I gather he was quite good with the media, and I never met the man, man myself. And then they go to Smith and he goes, uh, unfortunately, the Sacramento or the, the San Antonio franchise has been, uh, has been suspended for a year. Got to go. And he was off. And, of course, the, the way Smith described it, it might be hyperbole, but he literally is running through uh, the, the, the kitchen of the restaurant in the hotel with the media, and, and he, he affects this escape, and then they – they come out with a cover story the next day that, you know, they'll be, they'll revisit it. And uh, Mr. Benson is trying to line his finance and stuff, but uh, that was it for that team. Ironically, uh, Fred Anderson takes the team to San Antonio in the, 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 the last year of existence. How, how does this, how does the sports media take to that? Do they, uh, are any flags raised or any, uh, any eyebrows raised in any of this? Uh, hard to say again going over the resource material yeah you know there was there was uh, there was some eye rolling and there was yeah but but you know they had fred anderson like i said they had you know they had done some things well so i think as odd as it may seem i think they were willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one the problem was it wasn't an isolated case. It was a, a story that would recur over and over again in this tumultuous period. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills. And uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one month trial of the Audible service. And interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. The Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also uh, in my queue, next up uh, is another guest that I'd like to get, uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the L.A. Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today 
the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. All right, well, let's get to that next season because that's when really things really start to heat up, right? So the gold miners uh, not only survive, they do, uh, to your point, uh, fairly well. They, they acquit themselves quite nicely, albeit in a stadium that's a bit subpar, you know, uh, that Sacramento takes to them. Uh, and now it's time to add more teams. And there are three of them, each with their own little interesting stories. Um, in no particular order, the Shreveport Pirates, as, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Las Vegas Posse, which is just a head scratcher in its own way. But maybe we should start with perhaps the team that was probably most, um, I don't know, perhaps the, the 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 best, the biggest quote unquote success of the American franchises, but also the most, um, I don't know, shall we say uh, acronym challenged or not acronym, but uh, nickname challenged uh, the team from Baltimore. Do you want to kind of give us a little bit of history about that? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and I like it because it, it really is at its heart. It's 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 a lovely story because it it rekindles Baltimore's love for the Colts. And like, I'm sorry, this is the Colts team. They will always be the Colts team to me. So again, the background: Robert Ursi is the owner of the Colts, and in, I, I believe it's 1987. He does the famous end run where he moves the franchise in the dead of night from Baltimore, rips the heart out of the city, its ancestral home with these incredibly deep connections in, in the old city of Baltimore and moves them to Indianapolis and leaves the city without a football team. And, and, and the bitterness and the anger and everything that ensued. So it lasts up until the time the CFL shows up. So, the owner-operator is a guy named Jim Spiros, who, who I believe had been a, a college football player. Um, he, he's a hustler. He's a, he's a young go-getter. He sees this opportunity. He looks around Baltimore. He goes, you know, God, there's this hole that the, the Colts left behind. I might be able to fill that there. He gets some local money behind, not a lot but enough to start it up. But his, 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 his real genius was in putting the franchise together because his, his, his two hires, he hires as the head coach, Don Matthews, who is in the short list of the greatest coaches in CFL history. And then he hires a young up and comer named Jim Pop to be the general manager who was still in the CFL though all these many years later. And they understand the league, they understand the players, they understand, you know, what's going to work and what isn't. And they build, in, in, it's extraordinary when you think about it, in one short year, they build a team that makes it to the, to the Great Cup game in Vancouver. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's also interesting, too, that, um, you know, obviously a, a strong um, allegiance and a, a desire to rekindle 
uh, as directly and figuratively as possible the Colts name, but obviously the Colts name uh, became a problem and, and very early on at that. Yeah, and, 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 and let's be clear, like uh, Spears' whole strategy was directed at resurrecting the Colts. So he goes, they had these things called Colt Corrals in, in Baltimore, and they, and they still existed, and they were like these like little area fan clubs with each one, and, and, he, and he went to them and said, look, I'm going to bring a, a football team. He brings, he brings the old Colts back. Tom Maddy is a really important part uh, of the Colts franchise. He gets Johnny Unitas on board. I want to say John Mackey was part of the group as well so like he 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 is selling this tie you know we are bringing the colts back yes it's a different league and all the rest of it but but we are bringing the colts back so uh i the nfl's original tact is to ignore them and then when it becomes clear that um you know they're going to see the light of day and also they're very very popular in baltimore for what they are and more importantly what they aren't which is an nfl team in this whole the whole backdrop of this is the city of Baltimore extending their middle finger to the NFL. The NFL decides they're going to they're going to come in and uh, and <laughs> and uh, legislate against uh, that, that Baltimore team using the name Colts. So even at that, it ends up as a win for Spiros and his team because they're still fighting those dogs from the NFL. The t- this you know the league that ripped our team. Well, now they're not going to let us use their name. Well, you know. You know what you can do with that. <laughs> so it's like I said, it just became a, a great story. Now it left them without a name, but at, at the very first game, and I think we're probably going to get to the uh, Sports Illustrated story. But um, so the very first game, the the PA announcer is announcing uh, the, the the Baltimore team, and he's not allowed to say Colt. So he goes, ladies and gentlemen. You're 1993 Baltimore, and he doesn't say anything in the whole crowd. I believe there's like 40,000, 45,000 at Memorial Stadium screams out Colts. So that that that's kind of the, that, that, that's the story there. They go through the year; they're they're known by various things. They finally settle on the Baltimore CFLers, uh, and then the next year they become the, they adopt the name the Stallions. But I I, I think. For the vast majority of, of the people of Baltimore, they, they, they were the Colts. Yeah, and uh, and obviously the iconography, or you know, was emblematic or or reminiscent of a, a horse or some some equine kind of uh, related thing, right? So, I think they they probably did just about as good a job as you could do without sort of officially crossing the line uh, into trademark well, land. Yeah, and, and, and they couldn't have paid for the publicity they got from this thing, too. You know, like I said, in the end, I mean, the NFL, God bless them, is good at a lot of things, but I don't think their their strength might be playing the villain at whatever the issue is, and they certainly played that role well in this case, you know, and, I, and just going back and reading over it, and I'm, you know, not going to be able to, be able to pull details. I do remember it's in the book, but, you know, they had this lawyer, who's speaking, you know, in very clinical terms about how they can't, you know, this is an infringement on our copyright and on our property and all the rest of it. You know, in the meantime, you can just see the people in Baltimore jeering at them. So, uh, like I said, it's, you know, everything that Baltimore team, it couldn't have broken more correctly for them than it did that first year, right down to the team they, they, they put on the field. Well, it seems like they were. The, uh, it was. It, it was almost a, a a, uh, a year two sort of imprint of 
uh, success, or at least that this was a smart move on the CFL's part to get into the United States. And, and Baltimore was, frankly, probably the shining example uh, of of why to do so. Because what you mentioned, right, this is a team that went all the way to the Great Cup and lost in the last seconds, right, to the BC Lions at BC uh, on the last second field goal. And my understanding, again, again, my crack research, right, you're the pro, not me, um, that there was actually a small profit made uh, in that first year. Yeah, there was. I don't think it was a whole lot because as things would transpire, as Spiros was papering the house. But they were also putting 40,000 people in there, and their payroll wasn't that high. So, you know, like I think they did they did reasonably well, um, and they certainly did, did well by the city. It seems to me the mayor of Baltimore ends up as a champion of the, of the, of the Colts incarnation uh, on top of everything else. Um, so, so, so the, the, this all uh, plays a role in it. But, but, but no, you're, you're, you're right. They, the CFL could always point to, well, all this crazy stuff, that we're gonna, we'll get to Las Vegas and Shreveport in a minute, but while all the crazy stuff is going on with them, they can point to Baltimore and go, ah, but you see, we know what we're doing. Look at how well Baltimore is doing. Look at this shining example of our vision. And, uh, and, uh, and again, I think they got a bit of a pass just because of Baltimore for, those, for, for two of those years anyways. Well, okay, so for Baltimore and all its success uh, out of the gate and, uh, and its rekindling of, of the passion for football uh, in the city of Baltimore, Let's talk about Shreveport and Las Vegas, perhaps in that order. Um, what about so Shreveport? Right, has a bit of a history. Right, it was the uh, the second destination for uh, the World Football League. Um, right uh, back in the seventies. Right, the steam the steamer. Yep, uh, which itself was a was a was a, uh, a, a you know a removal from. I want to say it was the Houston Club of the WFL in seventy four. Um, that relocated there in mid-season. Um, craziness there. But, uh, you know, Shreveport, not in the biggest metropolitan area in the country. However, uh, very much in the heart of um, sort of the sort of Texarkana, southern Midwest, if you will, uh, football country with lots of college teams and all that kind of stuff. But uh, maybe some background as to who was behind the Shreveport franchise, uh, uh, courtesy of the, uh, the uh, CFL. Uh, and maybe some of the shenanigans that sort of went on in uh, in the heart of Louisiana there. I, I don't know if I have enough. My, my phone has enough battery to get into the Gleibermans. Uh, but but so, so, so the owner-operators are uh, a, a, a father and a son, a combination. Bernie Gleiberman, the father and the money, and his son, Lonnie. And the story goes that Bernie gave Lonnie the football teams to operate just to keep him away from his businesses that actually made money. He was, that was kind of the lost leader. So they own the Ottawa Rough Riders through a series of circumstances which are far too complicated to replicate here, and I don't think I can recall them all anyways. But as is always the case with the CFL, it's Byzantine, and it's, it's convoluted, and it's crazy, and it includes... Dexter Manley showing up as the face of the franchise and the star that's going to sell out the Ottawa team. Well, during the off-season between 92 and 93, Lonnie Gleiberman shows up at a bar in Ottawa with his girlfriend. People stop, start uh, mocking him. Uh, he beats off to one of them, and, and the guy punches him in the mouth. And that's it. 
the Gliebermans, this is the, this is the act that, that, that drives the Gleberman, Gliebermans out of Ottawa. I am still unclear why they chose Shreveport as their destination, other than I know they got a sweetheart deal, uh, the stadium, which was, uh, which was uh, city-owned. Uh, it, was, it was on a, an exhibition grounds, and there was a bit of a history of football there. And in the Gleberman's mind, uh, that was good enough. So they set up operation there. Uh, they hired John Heward as the head coach. No, I'm sorry. They hired Forrest Gregg as the as the Heward or Gregg first, whoever it was. And, uh, yeah, John, the, and, John, and Heward, John Heward was the first head coach, and then uh, I guess the Gleberman sort of came over the, the the general manager Albrecht at the time and said, "That's right. Yeah, yeah, he Gregg. definitely. No, I'm sorry. I don't believe Heward makes it to the first game before he's fired and replaced by Forrest Gregg." And this J.I. Albright character who's been around the CFL for a number of years, and they're both a little barmy, to tell you the truth. But they set up their operation at the exhibition grounds where the football stadium is, and much hilarity uh, ensues. Shall we get into that? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, they were sort of uh, dreadful on the field. And, um, you know, it sounds like they had some some decent support from – from the locals, uh, and you're mentioning, by the way, there is a football heritage, right? I mean, they're in sort of the, you know, Texas and LSU and Arkansas, and they have the Independence Bowl, the college uh, bowl game every year that was sort of started up in the 70s. So there, there's definitely a football culture there, but it's, again, not the largest market. But it just seems like they, um, I don't know, it just seems like they, uh, well, they, but before we get to sort of their uh, their p- attempts to relocate the team, which is an interesting story in and of itself. Um, it, it just, it seems to me that they also were indicative of uh, an issue that uh, beset the, a number of the teams that, uh, that came to the United States from the CFL with this, um, shall we say challenge from uh, high school football on Friday nights and college football on Saturdays. Once, the second half of the CFL season got underway, right? A real threat or a challenge, right? To, to the gate and uh, sustaining interest in the, in a team uh, as the season wore on. Yeah, I don't know how much that impacted the Shreveport uh, franchise. I know for a fact it had a huge impact on Birmingham and and probably uh, Memphis as well. Uh, true. I mean, Shreveport Shreveport was just kind of Looney Tunes. Uh, for, for, from the start, so the, the, their their very first training camp, like I said, the uh, football stadium is on an exhibition grounds, and there's the, the, there's this big agricultural barn that Albrecht uh, bring he brings bunk beds in, and this 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 is where the players are housed during training camp. Um, right next to it is uh, where the, 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 there's some kind of wild animal component. Um, to, to, to this uh, to, 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 to this fairground and and they this is, this is just kills me. They have a tiger in a cage, so every day the players go out, they practice, they come back, and they walk past this caged tiger. And of course, some of them start looking at it and say, so "Look at the tiger! Look at the tiger!" So this one day they're doing it. A player named Johnny Scott, who's actually a very good CFL player, played in the league for a number of years. He's 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 looking at the tiger, he's pointing at it, that the tiger turns around, lifts its tails up, and covers Johnny Scott in tiger urine. So that that's kind of the story of, of Johnny Scott and, and, and the tiger. But but there was that whole 
Um, there were monkeys, and, and, and I guess when the players are trying to sleep at night, uh, their chattering kept them up on, at, at, at night. <laughs> you just try and imagine like like the worst set of circumstances for a football team, and that that's what Shreveport was. Uh, so they get they get through that first year. I think they lose their first fourteen games, something like that. They finally win one, and they finish the season one and fifteen, and then and then come back and they. They get a quarterback the next year. They bring Billy Joe Tolliver in the, 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 the next year, and they're a little more entertaining. But it's uh, it, it just kind of the, the dice getting cast. There just isn't enough there to support a team. All right. So when were they thinking about moving the team to Norfolk, Virginia? Was that during that first season, or was it after the? No, I, I believe it comes in the second season, okay. and, and of course, by the, you know by this by this time, the Glebermans have brought up. All, 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 all manner of bills with the city of Shreveport, which owns the stadium, owns the fairground, et cetera, et cetera. So they start casting around, uh, you know, looking for other cities. And Norfolk, Virginia is very enthusiastic about attracting for a lot of the same reasons all these American cities are. You know, they're, they're big on football. It's, you know, pretty, they don't really have a franchise to call their own. Uh, they look around, they say, well, they're big. You know, some of these teams seem to be doing well. So, so they have a series of meetings with the people in Norfolk, Virginia, and of course, they phone uh, the people in Norfolk, phone the people in Treeport to find out what the Clevermans are about, find out, you know, they've got uh, a list of decks as long as their arm, and then their interest wanes after that. Um, maybe we should talk quickly about um, the great Tucker caper. Is that awesome. Yeah, no, again, it's, 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 it's right there, like with the Tiger story and so many of the other ones in, 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 in CFL uh, expansion wars. So, uh, so the Gleiberman, he, he, among other things, he, he was a, a collector of vintage automobiles, and he actually had one of the very few uh, Tuckers manufactured. Not only that, it was roadworthy. And as I believe the story goes as a gesture of good faith, he, he lent it. Uh, to a museum or some civic building in Shreveport to show off. Well, w w when they start running up debts, uh, the city of Shreveport takes a long look at this very valuable vintage car and says, well, you know, I think that would satisfy some of them. <laughs> so Gleiberman has a lawyer whose name escapes me right now, but he gives him the keys to the car and instructs him to drive it out of Shreveport as fast as he can. I can't remember if he's headed to Norfolk. I think that might be part of the story, but I'm not sure. But he's driving this thing, and of course it runs out of gas. Of course he's by the side of the road when the police pull by. Of course the police ask, what's this all about? And the car ends up back in Shreveport. I, I don't know what happened to it at the end, but that was uh, that was the great uh, Tucker Caper with the Shreveport That's Pirates. Just... That's just insane. I mean, just it's just absolutely insane. So that that has to be another episode at some point. We've got to get into the story of, of the of of the, of the Shreveport Pirates. It just I it um, okay. But so if that weren't enough, okay, right? So kudos kudos to the CFL. Now we're talking about Las Vegas. All right, so let's talk about that sort of craziness. The Las Vegas Posse, um, arguably based on my again my crack research the least successful of all these teams that expanded. Uh, they only lasted a year, this 1994 season, or, or perhaps you have a conjecture on that. 
No, 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 I no, no. I, in fact, you can easily make the case they are the worst professional franchise in the history of professional sports. Interesting. Uh, they made the Street, but they made the Shreveport Pirates look like a Fortune 500 company. So the, the, it starts off. The owner is Nick Maletti, is a dude out of Cleveland who had owned, I believe, he owned the Indians for a while. He definitely owned the Cavaliers. He owned the Cleveland WHA team, and he's very much a part of this sports entrepreneur. Uh, owner, operator, hustler, uh, entertainer, producer, who's who's going to make it big. And, you know, you, when you think about it, you think, of, boy, look at what the hockey team's done there. Maybe he was just out of his time because there is no professional football franchise in, in, in Las Vegas. So he, he goes in there, he hires Ron Meyer, a former NFL coach, as his head coach, he goes out and he spends money on on some fairly big name players. The biggest of which was uh, Tameric Van uh, Van Vanover, yeah, Vanover, who'd been an All American at Florida State. Some other pretty good CFL players, and they set they set up operations. So, the Las Vegas Posse's first uh, training camp is in the parking lot of the Riviera Hotel. And they set up this makeshift CFL field that's actually only, it's, it's basically, they, they, bring in, they bring in some, uh, some plywood, lay down some cement, put down some ground, put grass, and then it's 70 yards long and there are no, uh, there are no uh, field goal posts. So that's where they, and this is also the dead of summer in Las Vegas. So they, uh, they, uh, they, they end up practicing in routinely temperatures that exceed 100 degrees. So that's, funny enough, but the other great part is they encourage the players to cash their game checks at the Riviera Hotel. So, of course, they go in there, and there are more than one player, unfortunately, lost their entire paycheck on the gaming tables at the Riviera Hotel. So, this is just the start of the franchise. Now, if I may, uh, the assistant coach at the time is a guy named Jeff Leinbold was one of my all-time favorite characters in, in sports. He, he has coached in the CFL uh, for well over 30 years, and he was, he was the boy um, special teams coach for Ron Meyer that year, and he is an inveterate storyteller. So he was kind of my eyes and ears uh, to, that, to that first year in, uh, in Las Vegas, and, and, and the, the stories he tells about Meyer, you know, everywhere you go, he had to make uh, he had to make an appearance, and he had slick back hair, and he never took his sunglasses off. But he was kind of this larger than life character who was going to sell football in Las Vegas until he didn't. Well, they also I, it, 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 they didn't draw very well either. They were playing at Sam Boyd Stadium. That's right. Yeah, I think I think this this is also emblematic. I believe because this is the first when I was doing my research, uh, seemed to be sort of the first of what looked to be a recurring issue. Uh, and that is, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, compromise being made uh, on the field size, right? Uh, the Canadians field obviously being much longer and a bit wider than the NFL franchises uh, or the league. Um, you know, but it seems like uh, Las Vegas uh, in particular uh, had to make a uh, a bunch of uh, concessions, if you will, on the actual replication of the CFL uh, uh, field size, no? Yeah, you know what? I, I wasn't aware of them so much as, I, and this is a huge part of the Memphis story. So, but but it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, Sam Boyd was where uh, the University of Nevada at Las Vegas played, and it was a, again, it was very similar to Hornets Field. It was basically thirty thousand seats, but they, they were all like kind of metallic uh, 
grandstands and it was out like half an hour, 45 minutes from the strip. So, you know, it was funny, you know, reading the resource material, uh, you know, so obviously there's a, you know, an interest factor there, but then Canadian writers go down there. And one of them asked, asked one of the bookies at one of the sports books about what he thought uh, about this idea of bringing professional football, Canadian professional football to Las Vegas. And he said, they're not going to last the year. Like, like, why would anybody leave this? And he looked around, you know, at his air-conditioned casino and go all the way out there to watch football they don't know about and don't really care about. Uh, turned out to be prophetic because that's exactly what happened. Uh, but there was, of course, more adventures along the way. Well, I get the sense that they uh, were, were looking very much to fold by the middle of the season. I mean, their their average attendance was something in the neighborhood of just under nine thousand a game, uh, and I think, yeah, and I think their 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 second to last home game, uh, they drew what I guess became a lasting and still lasting record low crowd of two thousand three hundred and fifty people, the lowest recorded attendance in CFL history in nineteen ninety. It's just. It's just one calamity after another for Las Vegas. So in their first game, so this is going to be, you know, and it's nationally televised in Canada, and I believe they're playing the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and they, they find somebody to sing the Canadian national anthem, and they, 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 you know, they, they, they've, gone, they've gone through it, and they find this guy, he's recommended to them. They go through an agency, yeah, here, take this guy. He's, he's sung national anthems all over. Well, the guy gets there and he gets about five notes in and he loses the tune completely and he basically ends up singing our our, our national anthem to the to the tune of Oh Christmas Tree and it has since become it is among the most widely viewed sports videos in the history of Canada. It still is, and this guy's name was Dennis Casey Park. And I invite anybody who's listened to, to Google it because it is an absolutely epic moment. As I said, from there, it just like th- things are just spiraling downward and they're, they're not drawing anybody and they're running out of, uh, out of money. Uh, Jeff Reinbold told me, uh, you know, they, they, they would, they would write their, uh, they were, they, they would write their game plans on the, on the back of one sheet. And then, and then they were ordered to turn it around because they had to use both sides of the paper. So they'd have the, you know, the, they'd have the, They'd have the game plan on one side and then next next week's game, game plan on the other. Uh, they fired all the cheerleaders. They fired everybody. They ended up with about two or three people uh, working in the office. And and, and uh, memorably, uh, the board there was I guess there was a couple of people on the board of directors and and they called a meeting and they turned Nick Maletti out which led to this immortal line. For, it's one of my favorite lines in, in all the sports from Ron Meyer, the head coach. He said, this is the first time the owner was fired before I was. <laughs> uh, so that was, that's kind of, that's kind of the legacy of the Las Vegas policy. So, based on your research. And, I'm sorry. One, yeah, but, one, yeah, sorry. One final thing. So as you said, they drew about 2000 for their, for their second last, the CFL takes a look at that. They have one more home game scheduled. They decide they're going to play it in Edmonton. Because they're not going to draw anybody, and at least people in Edmonton will show, will go up to show will, will show up for you know this last spasm of the, the Las Vegas Posse. So the Las Vegas Posse's last uh, home game was played in Edmonton, Alberta. So what was what was a story that you could tell about about Nick Maletti, right? Uh, Cleveland guy. What what the hell's he doing with a franchise in this sort of expansionary thing in in Las Vegas? He, 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 you know, I don't know a ton about him, and I don't know why he gets 
gets involved other than he's one of these characters who just seems to be endlessly attracted to the action, to, you know, something new coming along. And it, cause, cause he, like he appears in the WHA and he's got, he's got to get the Cleveland cruiser. And, and, you know, and again, he was wealthy and he was a bit of an entrepreneur, but uh, it, it was more the hustle. It was the action he was attracted to. And that seems to be the common denominator with so many of the characters that go in and out of this story of American expansion. Okay, can you can you describe sort of the uh, the um, the denouement of this story because it doesn't end kind of with the team whimpering away, right? Uh, there's there's more uh, fun and frivolity to be had, even though the posse doesn't really technically exist after the end of the season because it looks like Maletti tried to figure out some other places to take whatever was remaining of this team and, and move it elsewhere. So one one of, one of the uh... <laughs> endlessly entertaining but frustrating parts uh, of this book of doing this book is I kept running into these stories where well oh uh, now uh, uh, name a city and I know I listed them at one point and it seems to me there were somewhere in the order of 48 American cities that were which were listed as viable and possible uh, franchise sites for CFL teams and they are all over the map uh, so Yes, I'm sure he tried to move it somewhere. I'm sure he tried to sell it to some other city. I'm just not sure where. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was, you know, probably it didn't really matter because they weren't going to take it and he wasn't going to put any money into it. But it, it, it's it's absolutely remarkable the number of cities, whether it's Orlando, Florida, whether it's Miami, or whether, and then a whole host of uh, of smaller ones. I'm trying to remember the the one in in New England. The the, the whole plan, yeah, we're going to go in there and we're going to bring Doug Flutie back and we're going to build this team. And of course, it, it never saw the light of day. So it's a common theme. It you know it recurs over and over again during this period. But I had a really hard time trying to figure out if any of them were credible because in the midst of it, there's all, you know, there's just ample uh, evidence to suggest 99.9% of them weren't. That's interesting. I, I, I did a little bit of research in the, and it looked like of all people, Jimmy Buffett got involved near the end of this thing <laughs> with, with the idea of possibly moving this team to the uh, even more burgeoning metropolis of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it just it's fascinating and it, it winds up uh, the diaspora goes into uh, places like Miami and the, the Miami manatees uh, as, as a name and and all that kind of stuff but it's just I, I guess it's just indicative and this is exactly the kind of stuff that we just obsess about and become fascinated by okay so so we've talked about two sort of let's call them disastrous let's probably no no better way to describe yeah. it franchises um but so okay but that doesn't stop the CFL now does it right so f- before we get into the the last season of this craziness, um, what is the, uh, what can you tell sort of the quality of play and, or the health of the CFL and, and where people now in year two, certainly with the success, uh, the relative success of Baltimore, maybe overlooking the Shreveport and Las Vegas, uh, debacles. What is the, from what you could tell, what is the sort of, uh, feeling, uh, amongst, uh, our Northern neighbors, uh, around, uh, whether this was working or not? Well, yeah, it, it, I, I think by the, toward the end of year two, it becomes obvious to everybody this is. But I think there's also a time that, like I said, they could always point to Baltimore. And so the 94 Grey Cup game in Vancouver turns out to be this like watershed moment. Last second, 
BC ends up pulling out, and it, and it was an upset because that Baltimore team is stacked. Uh, Baltimore comes back next year as the Stallions and, and absolutely drills Doug Flutie and the Calgary Stampeders in the great cup game in, in a lopsided, and there's still a lot of people who think that Baltimore team was the best team in CFL history. They had at least half a dozen guys go to the CFL or go to the NFL from that team the next year. And they were stacked on offense, stacked on defense. And that, that, that Calgary team they beat was very, very good. So they could point to that, but there's just so much other stuff coming on. And, you know, it's my my sense in, in going back over, over that time is people just kind of, they, they paid a little bit of attention to Baltimore for a year, maybe two years, they paid a little bit of attention to Sacramento. The, the, the other teams are just kind of background noise. They they didn't really make a dent. Uh, we, 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 I guess we'll get, we'll, we'll get into uh, Birmingham and, and Memphis here shortly. Uh, and then the Sac- or I'm sorry, the San Antonio team just had the one year run and they were, you know, existing on the fumes of that, that Sacramento franchise. But I, 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 by the end of year, by the, I'm sorry, by the end of year three, the 94 season, I think it was pretty apparent uh, that this thing just didn't have legs. Well, it's ironic because you're mentioning the gold miners of Sacramento. They wound up going and becoming um, the San Antonio Texans in the Alamo Dome, which was ironic because, right, that was supposed to be mm-hmm. when Sacramento joined the league uh, to be uh, the sister franchise of the then, you know, the, the original San Antonio franchise. So, but by whatever means, right, San Antonio finally got its franchise, albeit in the what ultimately became the last of the three uh, American seasons uh, of the CFL. But plus, besides that, that moving and obviously the Las Vegas posse died a relatively ugly death, um, two new franchises, right? And these are interesting, right? The Memphis Mad Dogs uh, and the Birmingham Barracudas, uh, not the, uh, the, the names I would have given these teams, I guess, but uh, they do speak to... Um, a theme that we've heard over time, right, where these are two examples of, of markets that have been constantly overlooked by the NFL and are of rabid fan bases and have been wooed and uh, dragged out, uh, it looks like again now, with the reincarnated XFL and the uh, Alliance of American Football. These are, 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 again, these are always on the short list, these two markets, uh, for quote-unquote professional football franchises because there's absolutely an appetite there. And uh, a dearth of of the pro game, uh, in the form of it not having an them not having an NFL franchise. So, uh, it seems to me like it, I, I'm surprised, frankly, given the WFL, given the USFL, given the WLAF, all before the AFL, even uh, you mm-hmm. know this period of time that Memphis and Bir- Birmingham would only come in in the third season of this experiment. You'd think they would have been like on the short list in the beginning. Yeah, no, no, you're right, and, and, and you know the, the history of the if you're going to look for a market, those those would be the two ones. Not only that, I think pretty quickly, uh, you know, the owner operators are identified, and, and unlike so many of the others in this era, these guys are men of means. There's a substance. So in Birmingham, you've got uh, the insurance magnate Art Williams, who would go on to own the Tampa Bay Lightning, I believe, and and in uh, in Memphis, you've got Fred Smith is one of the drive, driving forces behind, help me, his name of this corporation. I'm just oh, blanking uh, out. Oh, Express. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, so FedEx. So, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got men of, you know, tremendous means. 
you know, and then in the case of uh, the case of Art Williams, you know, he he attempted to follow the Baltimore model. He brought in a proven CFL man. He, he spent money on Matt Dunnigan, who was probably in the he was in one of the two, three best. He wasn't quite in Flutie's class, but he was in the next notch below uh, CFL quarterbacks. They had a number of uh, CFL, you know, really good CFL players they brought in. And it started off, it was encouraging. What they found was once Alabama, the University of Alabama, started their football season, nobody really cared too much about the Birmingham Barracudas. So I, I, I remember looking at the attendance figures and it seemed to me they start off, you know, they start off in the high 20s and then the low 20s and then you, you get to September and now all of a sudden it's 12,000, it's 15,000, it's 11,000. So they just couldn't make a go of it, which, which is unfortunate because, you know, like, like I said, well, you know, Williams seemed to want to make, a, you know, a legitimate effort. Uh, to, to build a franchise there. Memphis, unfortunately, you know, again, they go out, they hire a, a CFL guy uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on the name. I'll come back to in, in a minute. They hire Damon Allen, another very good CFL quarterback. They bring Pepper Rogers in, who's, you know, a big name in, in, in NCAA coaching, and it just doesn't work. In fact, like Memphis is more famous for the stadium they played in than anything uh, they, they did on the field. Uh, it, it just, yeah, it just, by, by, by now, any momentum that had been generated by, the little bit of momentum that had been generated by Sacramento and by Baltimore had dissipated. Well, you had uh, you had mentioned earlier, and I think these are the two franchises in particular, right? You, and uh, you hinted at it with Birmingham, right? This is, these are two quintessential, um, shall we say, Southern uh, football markets that uh, college football and on Fridays, frankly, high school football uh, seems to dominate the landscape. And uh, it, it looks like both of these franchises um, uh, argued uh, to the uh, CFL management that uh, they, as the season uh, dragged on, that they should play their games on uh, uh, Sunday uh, afternoons uh, to avoid competing with those Saturday college football and, and Friday night uh, high school football. But of course, you know, it, it also belies the fact that that Sundays are, uh, when last we checked, NFL football days, right? So it doesn't seem like there's a win-win there in any any way, shape, or form. But you also hint at Memphis, right? So, and maybe this is probably the best example. I, I, I'm sorry, I sort of uh, maybe blew this line earlier, but um, what of the stadium? What of the Liberty Bowl? Because as I said earlier, right, some compromises, many compromises seem to have been made with just about every one of these American franchises around the integrity of the uh, CFL uh, uh, markings and field size, but it seems like Memphis really went out of its way to kind of truly compromise itself. Now, didn't it? Yeah, they were. I mean, they were essentially they were trying to pound a square peg into a round hole, and they, and they they couldn't do it. So, I mean, they they fashion a field to the na- which to the naked eye looks a bit like the in the Canadian field. I'm sorry for people out there. It's 110 yards long. 65 yard wide and they should have 20 yard end zones. Uh, if you do the math quickly and look at that stadium in Memphis, you'd quickly realize a, uh, a, a field that size could not be fit. So their, their response was to make, so, and uh, I actually talked to the guy who uh, he was a writer for the uh, regional leader post paced it off. And, and what he discovered was the yards they were using were actually 33 inches long. So that, that, that took care of that problem. Now they still have to squeeze the end zones in. 
So they ended up you know, kind of jerry-rigging something that was like a rhombus or a parallelogram or something, but it wasn't like the rectangle you see in most stadiums. And there was also an abutment uh, that came out of one. And, and I, I gather, it just I, again, I didn't see it, but it, it came right up almost uh, to, 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 to the end zone line. So it, Danny McManus, the quarterback for the uh, BC Lions, same, looked in and, 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 and said, oh God, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Now, nobody, uh, there, there weren't any serious injuries as a result. But, uh, but again, uh, it's kind of, you know, kind of a metaphor for the whole Memphis and maybe even, you know, the whole idea of American expansion. It just didn't fit. So to back up for a second, you're mentioning that. So the, the, the Liberty Bowl grounds crew were marking yard markers, right, which is yes. 36 inches, as 33 inches each. That's right, yeah. So that's how yeah, they that's, somehow snuck. Yeah, did, did anybody recognize this or was it kind of a – I mean, I'm just curious just like how this was found out. <laughs> it, it it was later, and I don't know I, – I, I, I can't believe – but it, I, I'm pretty sure like with the research I did, I, I think had somebody mentioned it at the time, it would have been a story, but it never was. So I, I don't know if people were just, you know, kind of willing to let that one pass for the for the good of the league or, or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, it, it's almost that, in, that, that was that. Yeah, it's almost ingenious, I guess. Uh, in, in sure, retro, right? Sure. I, I, I we're gonna have a few of these uh, the pictures of this uh, of this stadium configuration on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com when we post this episode. Uh, but it's also interesting too because you could clearly see uh, the uh, end zones were uh, truncated and/or it almost looks like mm. kind of what 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 uh, 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 deferences are made to certain arena football league uh, uh, venues, right? Okay. See the see the end zones kind of uh, clipped off and and not being sort of fully rectangular. Um, I also uh, saw some pictures that. Uh, it looks like to uh, to widen the field. There's a grass field, at, or at least at the time was at uh, at Liberty, uh, the Liberty Bowl, right? But they also, if I'm not mistaken, I think they even added to expand it on the sides, astroturf uh, around around the actual grass field. So in some respects, you almost had like a an old Comiskey Park baseball thing back in the '70s, where you had you know astroturf on one part of the field and, and actual natural grass on the other part which is just insane it seems in in the 1990s you know that's insane no i know i know i, I you, you know you talk about this stuff and you, you think you know, geez, are we talking about you know 60s or 70s it might it doesn't feel like it's that long ago and, and yet it was yeah i i i'm sorry i i i I'd completely forgotten about uh, and that now again that was their way of you know extending the field of <laughs> putting this kind of row of, of astroturf uh, along the sidelines to give the appearance that it was a, a regulation CFL field. Well, according to your research, then, what, what sort of, maybe we can describe and we round home here on this one. Um, give, give us a sense of sort of how all this sort of came to a conclusion, this sort of, I guess, what ultimately became an experiment. Um, it seems like there was... Uh, some movement to try to get a, a television contract with CBS here in the States uh, uh, post uh, the, this third season. Uh, it seems that, uh, you know, there there were, you know, some signs of, of maybe trying to continue to do this. But what in your sort of estimation was sort of the, how did it sort of sort of 
unfold as a, as in a collapse, if you will, and an abandonment ultimately of of staying in the United States for this league. Well, it, it, it seems as simple, and I'm going on, uh, you know, the story uh, Larry Smith told me. It just seemed like the, the American owners banded together and said, not like we just can't do. We're not going to do this anymore. And um, they, meet, uh, they, they meet in Toronto, and I, I, I gather it's, you know, I, I, most of these guys had access to private planes. Or they, so they, everybody flies in Toronto for these final meetings, and uh and that's it. And it seems to me it actually takes place at the end of, of the 94 season. So I don't think there's any like specific um, event that triggers it or some, you know, great category. I, I think it was just, just the sheer arithmetic of the, of the losses um, is, is what weighed them down. And uh, th- th- that was it. But I mean, you know, and again, there's a, a whole bunch of other stories connected with it. Art Williams paid his expansion fee in full. And of course, he was apoplectic when he found out that nobody else did. So I'm pretty sure he ends up suing the league to try and get some of it back. Uh, so it just turns out to be a schmozzle. But it, it dies kind of quietly and, and without like a lot of the furor, you would think would accompany something, you know, fairly, fairly significant story in Canadian sports. It just kind of, oh, oh well, here they go again. And, uh, and, and they were gone and they were gone seemingly as, as quickly as, as, as they'd appeared. Do you think the NFL uh, ever feared or, or feared is maybe a strong word, but uh, was concerned about the, the CFL? Because I, I do think there is, there are a bunch of folks who think that, and of course, this is not the cause because you, you just mentioned that it wasn't sort of one real thing. But um, when when the NFL in, in late 95 uh, announced that uh, the Cleveland Browns were going to move to Baltimore, it almost seemed like if there was any life in the CFL that might be going forward, you know, striking a dagger in the heart of, of the, the fledgling Baltimore, don't call them or maybe don't call them Colts, uh, franchise, Stallions, uh, was basically uh, – a Delta death knell by by the NFL moving back into to Baltimore. Yeah, I, I I can see that, but boy, talk about overkill. I mean, I, you, you know, again, as things transpire, they were starting to run out of money. As I said before, Spiros was was papering the house. He had no money of his own, so I, I question how long it was going to go, and especially considering what was happening to all the other franchises around them. Um, and the other part of that is in like I, I think I mentioned this earlier, in nineteen it's either nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety seven, the NFL arranges an interest free loan which goes a long way towards keeping the CFL afloat before they the, there's another series of events that happen which really solidifies the league and kind of moves it out of this danger area. So I wouldn't hold anything against the NFL. Uh, and I, I, I would believe that, but, but, but again, I just, I, I kind of have a hard, a hard time believing they would be like that petty, uh, you know, and that mean spirited that they would, uh, you know, like, like knock it out just for that reason. I think what they saw was there was a market, a very vital, vibrant market still in Baltimore that they needed to get a hold of. Yeah, it it almost seems like I, I I sort of thought I read some rumors that uh, that there were, uh, you know, the NFL was thinking about maybe even flexing its muscles and trying to put a team in Toronto circa 1996 or so, 
Mm, that's fair. I mean that. Yeah. And, and again, that that has been uh, that 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 has been a, a long held uh, CFL story about the NFL going into Toronto, and it's taken on various shapes and forms over the years, uh, but it's never come to fruition, and it, it won't now. All right, so what, what is the lasting legacy? I think there's actually one specific lasting legacy. You hinted at it earlier, but, you know, the Stallions wound up um, kind of round-tripping, if you will, and, and coming back to, to, to be a part of the ongoing, uh, you know, strength now of the CFL. Uh, maybe you want to speak to that. And then maybe generally, um, what do you think was learned from all this? Was this just sort of a, uh, a historical detour of, uh, of crazy madcapness for three years, or, or, or were there lessons learned and or... Uh, things that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, came out of it that were uh, lessons learned and, uh, and and positive going forward. Yeah, no, I, I think there were, and I apologize to your listeners in advance, because this is going to come from a Canadian perspective. And I think the overriding lesson that was learned is the CFL really only works as a Canadian entity. Uh, and, and the thing which sustains it, which drives it, which allows it to survive is its history, is its legacy, is its deep connection. Uh, in, in these communities, in some cases, that go back over 100 years. And that's what really has allowed it to survive. And that might be an over, overly romantic uh, uh, portrait of what the league is, but I really believe that. And when, you know, the, the states came in, these kind of like, you know, it was kind of a get-rich-quick scheme, you know, trying to exploit uh, a, a league that was in dire financial straits at the time, but it, it, it just didn't wash with Canadian football fans. And I, I think they needed that kind of, I don't know if scare is the right word, but, but, but they needed that to realize, to return to its roots of what it was. So that's kind of the overriding lesson. Now, in terms of the CFL, there are three things that happened afterwards, because really they're on the verge of folding in 1995 and 96. They are just hanging on, but three things happen. Uh, number one is David Braley, who's a wealthy industrialist in Hamilton, who's always had um, a, a liking for the league, uh, has built his businesses up to the point that he now wants to you know, do a good thing. And he moves in, uh, buys the BC Lions, operates them, absorbs huge losses over the next three, four, five years, but gets them up and running and makes them a viable franchise. In Montreal, Jim Spiro's, takes the ball. I'll just go through this quickly. Jim, Jim Sparrow ends up taking the Baltimore team to Montreal, operating it. Uh, it is going down the tubes again when they, a couple of things happen. One is they find a, a, a wealthy New Yorker named Bob Wettenhall uh, to take over the franchise. And he basically does for Montreal what David Braley does for Vancouver, gives it, gives it stability, gives it a bankroll they can fall, fall on. The other part is Montreal is still playing at the Big O, which is the 65,000-seat monstrosity, and they're drawing 10 to 12,000 uh, because, and bear with me, but there's a payoff at the end of this, they cannot get Olympic Stadium for a crucial playoff game, so they end up having to go to McGill Stadium, which is closer to downtown, which is this lovely outdoor stadium on the campus of McGill University. Yeah, they end up playing. It's, beautiful. it's lovely. Yeah, it is. So, so they, they end up playing their playoff game there. It seats 18,000. They get 18,000 there. They decide that's it. We're going to move there full time. And they've been there ever since. So that's the thing. They, they, they solidify two of their three biggest markets in Montreal and BC. And then the third thing is 
Cablevision, cable, cable sports comes a little late to Canada, but it has arrived. And and uh, TSN, the sports network, is out looking for programming, and they go all in on the on the CFL, and they end up signing a series of t- television contracts uh, that, that that gives uh, g- gives the league. Uh, operating capital and really ensures its its long-term survivability. So there it is. There's there's the there's the pricey on the history of saving the CFL. Well, there you go. So uh, and obviously it's 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 been quite thriving uh, uh, ever since. But where do you think the league goes, you know, from here on out, right? It's it's clearly I would argue much more exciting uh, than the American version of the game. It's certainly wide open. It's uh, more passing and I've always found it to be uh, a much more, uh, shall we say, modern and, and sleeker version of the game. Um, but, you know, how, how, how much further? I mean, can the league grow beyond eight, ten teams, you know, in Canada? Can you can you get into smaller markets? and, and Or is it just going to be, you know, sustainable and uh, steady as she goes and incrementally growing uh, over time? Is, is there talk of further expansion, but perhaps this time in Canada? Uh, are there other markets to go in Canada? What, what are the thoughts there? Well, there is one. So, so I mean, the, the, you know, the long-held dream of the CFL is to put a franchise in Halifax, and that pretty well covers the country. Now you've got a team in the Maritimes in Quebec, Ontario, all the way through. Now, the, 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 talk, the first talk of a Halifax franchise goes back to the early 1980s, and J.I. Albrecht, the character who shows up uh, with the Shreveport Pirates, is instrumental in that. Uh, it never gets off the ground. They're trying hard now. It, you know, again, on some level, the TV contract, such as it is now, almost covers teams' payroll. So, you know, if you can get, like, a stadium that generates enough revenue, then you can sell 25, 20 to 25,000 seats. You can make a go of it in the CFL, and that's what they're hoping for. Uh, they still don't have the venue and they don't have an owner yet, but there is really a concerted effort to try and get it there. Anything beyond that, I, I, I think, is probably a question of, of the reach exceeding the grasp. I'm just not sure. Quebec City, there's been a presumption that Quebec City could support a CFL team. Uh, the college team there, the, the, the Laval University team, does very well. Uh, probably not. There's some thought about maybe one of the northern suburbs in Toronto, but I think it's, I, 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 I honestly think the CFL maxed out would be a 10-team league. And uh, I'm sorry, I just don't see them going back to the States. It's, I, I just don't see it happening uh, for the reasons we've talked about here. I just don't think there's any appetite uh, to get back there. And, you know, and, and as long as they, they're not facing another you know, financial crisis like they were in the early 90s, I don't think there will be. All right, last question. The, the CFL and its place in uh, Canadian sports and or pro sports uh, landscape. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Major League Soccer has had some success. Uh, you've got the uh, the startup of the new Canadian Professional League uh, in soccer coming soon. Um, you know, I, 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 hockey always been sort of the national sport. Where does the CFL sort of fit or rank uh, in the Canadian sports landscape? Is it uh, and obviously it's got a heritage and a rich one at that. Is it strong? Is it weak? Is it uh, on the rise again? Where sort of does it fit, I guess, in the overall sort of Canadian sports uh, fabric? It depends where you're asking that question and the age of the person you're asking it to. So I am 62. So for, I'd say 
people like, like, like what do they call that? The baby boomer echo. Um, for, for, for those people who, who, who were, who were raised in, you know, in the six channel universe, uh, who weren't bombarded, the CFL is such an integral part of their upbringing. It was, you know, almost the equal of the NHL. And because there were so many more Canadian cities involved, you know, I'd say you, you could make the argument it might, it might even be bigger in, the, in some sectors. So for people of that age, the CFL will always, you know, have a, have a near and dear spark. Um, unfortunately, the, the audience for the CFL has been graying, and they've had, especially in Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver, a hard time attracting the younger crowd. Now, like I said, it depends where, where you ask that question. In the prairies, in, 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 in Edmonton, in Calgary, in Saskatchewan, in Winnipeg, there's still an it factor to the CFL, which kind of defies reason. And, you know, there's NHL teams in Edmonton and Calgary, but it's just, it, it just seems its roots are so deep in those communities uh, that the, the, the attraction is there, and, and it will take a lot more than that to drive it out. So it's kind of holding its own right now. It's the television money makes it viable uh, and makes the whole thing work. You, I, w- I would like to see uh, better attendance in my hometown, Vancouver, better attendance in Toronto, Montreal's a little shaky right now, and those are the three biggest uh, uh, markets uh, in the CFL. Uh, but the other, the other six smaller markets are all doing fine. And the CFL, if nothing else, has, just, has demonstrated this resilience, resiliency and survivability over the years, and that's really at the core of its identity. And I, 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 maybe I'm seeing what I want to see, but I don't see that changing uh, in the future. Well, look, I think it's this is a fascinating story, uh, even though it is a, a, a an asterisk, if you will, in the overall law uh, history. Um, why don't you tell our audience uh, uh, more about the book, the name of it, uh, where they can find it, um, and all that kind of good stuff. I had to follow you on. Uh, yeah, the, well, it's, it's called End Zones and Border Wars, and it's available on, on Amazon. If you can find it in the books, and I actually wrote it about uh, five, six years ago now. So if you can still find it in bookstores, God bless you. But I don't think I could, uh, even in Vancouver. Uh, but, it, but it's out there. I, it's, I, I've written three books. I wrote, I wrote one about the WHA. I wrote one about the 1987 Canada Cup. And they found an audience. I was a little disappointed this book found an audience. And I was, war- I was warned against writing it that there just isn't a market for it, that people aren't that interested in the CFL. And it did okay by Canadian book standards. Uh, but I, I probably should have realized when I was shopping it around and got you know, shut down by the publishing firm that published my first two books, that it, it was going to be a tough sell. Uh, so, I mean, it's still out there. It's like, it, it's like 20 bucks. I can't promise you anything, Tim, but I can, I can promise you you'll get $20 worth of entertainment out of this book. I am telling you, I don't know what other show goes to this great lengths to get into, uh, the, just the sheer arcana, if that's a word, of... Things like pro football uh, in the 1990s, uh, the Canadian Football League, and uh, its experiment, if you will, with uh, placing franchises south of the border in the United States. I mean, where else are you going to hear about uh, stories about the uh, Shreveport Pirates 
and uh, the Baltimore CFLers and their renaming of the, to the Stallions and, and the Las Vegas Posse. What the hell was going on there? I mean, it just it, amazing, amazing stories. And and I'm sure uh, you folks in all these different markets in the United States may remember these franchises, uh, especially in Baltimore, where they're quite successful. Sacramento, you gold miners fans, uh, you are not forgotten. Uh, and um, and others uh, like like you as well. Um, we thank uh, Ed Willis for uh, regaling us with this uh, interesting uh, sidebar of Canadian Football League history. Uh, and it's a North American football history for that matter. Uh, and a very interesting uh, part of the overall fabric of the history of the sport, both uh, here and in Canada. The name of the book is called End Zones and Border Wars, The Era of American Expansion in the CFL. Uh, It is written, as I said before, by our guest, Ed Willis, and uh, it is published by Harbor, and uh, it is available, as uh, as, uh, Ed said, on Amazon and all, frankly, wherever books are found. Uh, And of course, if uh, you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and search up the episode number 65, can you believe it? Uh, our, our interview with Ed Willis, you will see a link to that book. You will see some interesting images. Uh, we've got some pictures of the uh, the Liberty Bowl as it was constructed and uh, reconfigured uh, for the Memphis Mad Dogs and all kinds of other uh, hilarity and uh, frivolity from those uh, three interesting, shall we say, years of uh, Canadian slash American football in the CFL uh, on that website. So by, by all means, bookmark it and go there. Uh, as early and often as you can, it's good seats still available uh, dot com. And uh, we appreciate that. There's, of course, you're going to find our social media feeds there, too. But you can also uh, write these down and go directly to those places, too, if you'd like. Uh, on Instagram, we're at good seats still available on uh, Twitter. We're at good seats still. Uh, there's a page devoted to us on Facebook as well. And, um, you know, uh, what can I tell you? That's that's uh, that's there's plenty of ways to get in contact with us, keep in touch with us, uh, see the various uh, uh, promotional items that we have. We've got a newsletter. You can sign up for that on our website, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see what else. We want to thank uh, our friends at Podfly Productions, in particular, the good Dr. Jerry Payne, who painstakingly, get that, get it, haha, uh, puts our pieces together and makes our show sound somewhat decent. We appreciate his efforts as well as Podfly Productions. And if you want to get a uh, taste of what uh, quality podcast production is all about. Make sure you check them out at podfly.net. That's podfly.net, podfly productions. And uh, that's it for this week. I appreciate it. This is a fun little nook and cranny that we went down and uh, uh, we guarantee that we're going to find some more. There's plenty more where that came from. And we encourage you to uh, bookmark us and or subscribe to us and or download us and or whatever you do. Just keep coming back. Hopefully you'll find some uh, some more entertaining stories to come here at Good Seat Stillville. Thanks for listening. My name's Tim Hanlon. And uh, until next week, we uh, say a pleasant, uh, a pleasant week to you. Thanks for listening. Bye.